In my opinion, it should go this way on the 4th of May. To be honest, King Charles... Heard any sentences start like that last few days? I'm not going to finish them. You can imagine the kind of things people say. Maybe there are some people we abstain from voicing those kind of things. But on Facebook, in the pub, it never stops with us voicing our opinions though, does it? As soon as we get onto something we really care about, it's not enough to just say what we think. We have to give our opinion on the people who disagree with us. All of us are like that. We're always making judgments about things. Even the decision to not judge anyone, that's a judgment, isn't it? It's just saying that whatever it is we're not judging someone for, it doesn't really matter that much. All of us have opinions that we actually think are more than just our opinions. We think other people should share them and we'll judge them on the basis of whether they do or they don't. And that's not an inherently bad thing. The only way it's possible to exist is to make some sense of all the chaotic ideas and pictures that come to us. We have to make choices at the most basic level about how we organise all the stuff we see and we hear that comes to our attention. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount that literally having eyes makes us judging people. We choose what we're going to look at. And how we're going to see things. We can look at someone determined to see the best or determined to see the worst. We're beginning some extended time in this first letter to the church in Corinth from the Apostle Paul. He writes to them to help them make sense of all the swirl of ideas and options for life that are coming at them. It's a really cosmopolitan city, loads of different people. Apparently, Julius Caesar totally wiped it out and then decided, right, I'm going to refound it and I'm just going to bring everyone from all over the world and plonk them in there and say, right, you're a Corinthian now. So it was a real melting pot city with all these kind of ideas. It's like the internet before the internet. You couldn't rely on only coming across the right sort of people, wherever that was. There was a constant barrage of opinions about what to think. And the church in this city needs to make decisions about all of it. So we read through the letter, we see that their judgments, the things they were choosing to give their attention to, were ending up dragging them back into confusion from which Jesus, through Paul, had called them away. It meant they were beginning to look like and commend people who actually cared nothing for Jesus. They were even trying to make Jesus look better to the people around them by just tweaking him a bit, reconnecting him with the surrounding culture, overcoming the radical dislocation between the church and the culture and the society that it attempts to serve. The issues they were struggling with sound a lot like the issues we struggle with. Polarisation in society, money, sex, power. The only way we get out of making judgments which get us into trouble in the end is if we've made a judgment that is higher than whatever the dividing issue is. If we give our attention, direct our line of sight, choose our angle 
towards the one who is truly above these things. Then we begin to go more deeply into following Jesus rather than walking away from him. Call this series in the letter, Seeing with Jesus' Eyes. Through Paul's gentle but firm help, we join with this church as they struggle to make sense of all the challenges from the culture and society around them. One reason that I'd really encourage you to read the whole book now if you can, I reckon you could probably do it in about half an hour, uh, if you're, uh, maybe, maybe like an hour if you're a slow reader or in bits or whatever, uh, particularly in readiness for when we talk about it together as our coronation celebration uh, next weekend, we'll hear about the notices. It, it helps us get ready for what's coming because it is the stuff that's ripping our society apart at the moment. Inequality, power dynamics, politics, sexuality and gender, the whole idea of the supernatural, what happens to us after we die, rights versus responsibilities. But just look at the promise of what happens when we start seeing with Jesus' eyes. This is chapter one, verse four. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he's given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way. With all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. And then going down, he will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Don't we long to be a church community that's enriched by God in every way. That presents to our divided world a blameless, joyful life together. We'll dive into the letter with two things that set the whole thing up. Expanding on something Paul introduces right at the beginning, verse 2, the end of the verse. Calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So here's the two things. Christ crucified is above human power and wisdom. Christ crucified makes us weak and foolish to the world. Christ crucified is above human power and wisdom. That's the first bit, verses 1 to 17. It'll include a bit we didn't have read out, but hopefully you can follow with your Bibles open. Uh, Verses 1 to 9, that first section, are really surprising the more we find out about this church. Because they're the kind of church that you go to and you're like, you lot are all hypocrites. You're more messed up than I am. No way am I sticking around here. But Paul's positive about them because they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he thanks God for in them. That's what's enriched them. Jesus is the source of everything good that's there. If a church family is calling truly on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, they're not them. They're us. Paul says it explicitly. End of verse 2. All people everywhere who do this, that's church. It must be Jesus that leads to this, though. As the next bit demonstrates, verse 10. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, actually the name again, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other, 
Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now, that definitely gets the sense of it, the harmony idea. But, but it literally says that you might say the same thing. Just to repeat that thing we had before the creed. It's not just about being nice to each other. That does come, 1 Corinthians 13, that really famous thing about loving each other. But right at the start, Paul doesn't talk about just being nice. He makes a connection that we often don't. If we are all calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that will eventually lead to us all saying the same thing. And we're like, hang on a minute. That never happens. Even in a house, that doesn't happen. Even like in a family or a marriage, that doesn't happen. Uh, What about Bungie? People can't agree about the solar farm down the road or parking or rewilding or the EU or cutting the grass even. Should we cut it? Should we rewild? People just can't agree about that. Saying the same thing. Nah, come on. No way. That's never going to happen. That is the goal for the church. That bit, the Council of Nicaea, the thing that led to the creed, we said, that it was intense. This stuff really mattered. People, you know, Christians were trying to love each other, but it mattered so much that the tensions ran high. But they managed it. They said, okay, we're going to cut out all the stuff that is not essential for Christians to say, and this is it. This is the stuff Christians have to say to really call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The vision they had and the vision that the church still needs to have today is we're so committed to each other because we're all calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we work hard to be able to say the same thing. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone dresses the same, everyone votes the same, everyone thinks the same. It doesn't mean that. Paul specifically talks in chapter 8 about how you can differ on things. Freely. The idea is there is one thing which has implications for all those other things. The Lord Jesus Christ, who rises above all the differences. So those differences don't divide us. Now, perhaps we're still not sure about this most difficult of issues that's vexing the church globally at the moment. How we make the distinction between stuff that it's okay to be different about and stuff that we have to say the same thing about. Well, Paul gives us an example in Corinth to help us work out what that is. So I'll read verse 12. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. That puts us straight into their situation. Acts 18, if you want to follow to get a bit of context about what was going on at the time, Apollos is a legendary Bible study guy. Peter, as we discover in his letters, is more about ordinary life, how you run your family, how you work, how you submit to the people in charge of you in your job and all that kind of thing. But Paul was all about, let's go over the whole world and do evangelism, let's do mission. And you can imagine it, can't you? It's the same thing now, isn't it? Some of us think we should really be about the climate. That's the ultimate cause that should direct everything we're doing. Others say we must all pray in this way to be proper Christians. 
I spoke with someone the other day who was saying, if we really want to be church, we've got to encourage men to be manly. That's the really big, important thing. Maybe you've come across something like that, a Christian who's like, all the church really needs to do is this. Now, all those things can be good. You know, Peter isn't like a heretic and Apollos isn't. They're all good. The issue is when we take an approach, an emphasis, a position above Jesus. So you know the bit where it says, I follow only Christ. I, I don't know what that's about, really, because like, obviously that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. I think the idea is Paul's like, oh, yeah, it, here's a great idea. What if you all said, I only follow Christ? That might work a bit better than the other things you're doing. I think that's what he's going for. Because when we don't do that, we're actually slipping back into human wisdom and power. And you can tell that it's a human thing when it starts to divide us from other Christians. If we can't imagine being in church with someone who votes differently from us in the next election or who's decided not to be vaccinated because they have genuine concerns about it. Or someone who is very passionate about climate change. Or someone who is gay or transgender. If we can't imagine sitting in church with them, we're relying on human power and wisdom, which always divides. Now, Jesus does give us things to think about on all these issues. There is a right and a wrong answer. Often, no one person can claim it and boss everyone else around about it. That's not how it works. We learn together as church how we can live in the right way and make sense of all these complicated issues. And we'll discover that. Paul gets right into it. He says, this is how you handle this stuff. This is where actually you need to do this in order to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where there's room to do different things and still call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't let someone differing from us, but calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, divide us in either direction. Christ crucified is above human power and wisdom. Next bit, verse one, chapter 118 to 2.5. Christ crucified makes us weak and foolish to the world. So verse 17, Paul suggests that the cross of Christ has power. Well, what kind of power does it have? Uh, again, verse 17, if he had used clever speech to persuade them all to be Christians... That would empty the cross of power. Christ crucified isn't just above human power and wisdom. It's opposed to human power and wisdom. So much so that anyone who doesn't call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will think we're stupid for believing in him. Verse 20 People who are wise and powerful in the world's eyes are generally not in church. Or if they start coming to church, they get kicked out. We've seen that with Kate Forbes in Scotland. Or with Tim Farron, the leader of the Lib Dems, before. Utterly chased out of any kind of influence because they care about church, because they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Have you ever felt sad that Christians aren't cooler or doing things that our friends think are great? Maybe winning Bake Off or leading the charge on whatever issue has the most kudos on the BBC. But we have to take it up with God the Father. Here it is. Uh, Verse 21. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he's used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. God the Father actively chooses ways that look stupid and weak to most people. There will always be a radical dislocation between the church of Christ crucified and majority popular opinion, whichever side of the debate. And that's actually our only hope of genuinely being a community. Because human power and wisdom end up dividing people. However hard we try, it ends up leading to boasting. I have the right opinions and you don't. I've educated myself. You haven't. I'm woke. I'm awake. You're not. I'm in with this person, this influencer who makes the right calls. Oh, oh, you haven't heard of them, have you? Oh, oh. I'm on the right side of history. Now, being a Christian, trusting in a crucified God, disqualifies us from ever impressing anybody. I know I'm a vicar. People are like, what? <laughs> They really are. They're like, what are you doing? Like, that's the first question I'm asked. Like, why are you a vicar? Because it's like, who would waste their life like that? That's, what, that's like often what they're asking. And Paul lived that when he came to Corinth, chapter 2, verse 3. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. He didn't make Jesus fit in with what the Corinthians already thought was powerful and wise. He told the cross of Jesus as it is. People on all sides of the debates, that's what Jews and Greeks are here. It's like, Side A and side B, and therefore everything in between. They all said it was stupid. (laughs) But the incredible thing was, some people decided, maybe I don't need to be part of that tribe. Maybe there's something here that goes beyond, even though it looks stupid initially. Maybe that's why it's so great. (laughs) Because it just is totally different from all the stuff that we give our allegiance to. They were humbled by how stupid it looked to them, to think maybe it wasn't the thing that was stupid. If Jesus is at the top and he faced being at the very bottom, there's no more basis for us to judge each other on human wisdom or power. We know the person who's at the top, who's the wisest and most powerful, and he became the most foolish and the weakest. So that means we're all in... (laughs) We're all in the same boat when it comes to him. The one who brings everything together was despised as the one everyone hates and rejects. If he's the one uniting us, we can give time to everyone. Everyone can potentially be part of his church called to be saints. And we can get used to being okay with being thought silly, irrelevant, even dangerous by the people who matter. As we tackle this letter, let's come to Jesus humbly, coming alongside him in his shameful, stupid and weak appearing death. Christ crucified is above human power and wisdom. Christ crucified makes us weak and foolish to the world. 
But that's how we're enriched by the living God in every way. Let's pray.